Looking for car shows? Then look no further than flacarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, flacarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at flacarshows.com. Shock'em Dead, starring Tracy Lords. Shock'em Dead. Tracy Lords. Shock'em Dead. For the girl of his dreams, he'd make a deal with the devil. Shock'em dead. Set the Wayback Machine. Yes, sir, Mr. Peabody. Hey, everybody, this is Andy Powell, guitarist, Wishbone Ash, and you are listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome here to an into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google, Tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Actually not, because I'm in an undisclosed bunker someplace in the state of Florida. But anyway, don't forget to check out our website, GulfstreamMotorsports.com, and you can find out all about us. And don't forget to check out NostalgicRadioandCars.com, where you can listen to all our past shows and everything we have uh, recorded over the last... Guys, 12 years. So we got a very special guest for you this evening. Bobby, how are you doing this evening? Can you hear me? Can you talk to me? I don't hear anything, which is interesting. Um, we're actually doing this in, uh, in, a, in a location, so I don't hear. What we're going to do is we're going to introduce our special guest here in a few minutes. And we've got a real interesting guy coming on the show. We, uh, last week we had uh, Jeff Berlin on, who is an uh, extremely well-known uh, bass guitarist and uh, or bass player. Um Jury's still out on that, you know, because either or works fine. Um, and they make four-string, five-string, and six-string basses, and I guess more, seven. I'm not sure. A whole bunch of them. But anyway, and then tonight, to continue with our theme for Rocktober, um, we have another very, very accomplished uh, guitar player coming on, and I'm really looking forward to having this gentleman on the show because he is, uh, I guess you would call him another virtuoso in a way, you know, just extremely good and uh, he was rated one of the top uh, 100 metal guitarists of all time by Guitar World magazine. So uh, we're looking forward to having him on our show. So anyway, without further ado, I think Bobby's going to go ahead and play a little something here. In this demonstration of my double guitar, I'm going to play crisscross left-handed. I'm going to play truly left-handed. I'm going to play crisscrossed in harmonies. I'm going to play harmonies with two hands then flip my guitar upside down and play in harmonies. So here's what I do on the double guitar.
Okay, we're back. You tuned into Nostalgia Radio and Cars, and it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. Um, I'm delighted to have this gentleman on the show. He's a basically a uh, guitar legend. He's actually one of the creators of a very rare and unique double guitar. Okay, you've probably seen the double neck guitar, but this is a double guitar. Okay, he was voted one of the top 100 metal guitars of all time. He was one of the founding members of the band Nitro, and I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, Michael Angelo Badio. Michael, how are you? Hey, Robert, how are you? I'm doing great. So why don't you give us a little background on yourself? Um, you know, we're this is uh, the month of October. We always affectionately refer to it as Rocktober, so we always kind of go in the direction of music. We do a little, you know, mostly automotive, but we do a lot of music and stuff. And uh, so last week we had uh, Jack Berlin on, who's a very well-known uh, bass guitar player. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, I've met you before. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I figured, well, you know, to kind of compliment Jeff, Let's go to the other extreme. Let's get a real serious heavy metal guitarist on the air, and let's have you share some stories and tell us a little bit about how the uh, whole heavy metal thing took place. But give us a background on yourself, too, because you're a very, very interesting guy, because you, you actually started out playing the piano before you got involved in the guitar, right? Yeah, yeah. I started very young. I was five years old, and I started playing piano, and, you know, I, I just had, I, I could hear chords. I would watch my mom played piano and I would watch her, her play and I I figured out a song that she played by just watching her and listening. And then uh, but I realized the music that I liked really didn't have much piano in it and, you know, it was more rock music. So at 10 years old, I started playing the guitar and I knew from that point on that there was never any doubt in my mind that. I was going to go into music. Uh, so I've known my whole life what I wanted to do. And then, um, you know, I was in bands and I was in the jazz band in school and high school. And I won an award for for the Allstate solo that year in the in playing, you know, the guitar. Like they had different categories, each instrument. And uh, so we won. It was a, a state award. And uh, I'm from the Chicago area. So it was from Illinois and went to music school, got a degree in music. And then right after I graduated college, uh, I moved out to LA and it took a year. My goal was to get signed to a major label. And we did. Uh, it was a band called Holland. We were on Atlantic records and a producer named Tom Warman uh, produced our first record. And if uh, your listeners don't know that name, they know the songs. Uh, he did poison. Every rose has its thorn. Uh, all the big Motley Crue albums, Dokken. Uh, his first album he ever produced was Ted Nugent, Ted Nugent with Stranglehold and all those classic rock songs. He did Cheap Trick, uh, you know, I Want You to Want Me, all these huge, huge albums. And then he produced our band. And, and then uh, I went on to, uh, you know, we toured with Aerosmith. And next thing I know, I'm in uh, the band breaks up for, you know, a lot of reasons. And I formed uh band called nitro with a singer named jim gillette we got signed through warner brothers again and toured and and we were a real heavy uh metal band and it, it was great and, and from that point on it's just it's just never stopped i went solo and now uh I, I released 15 solo albums in addition to inventing guitars and now i'm working with a band called manowar and we're starting a tour uh we start rehearsals january 2nd and uh it's a headlining band, you know, 10,000 seats up and, and I'm playing on their new album and it's all good. But, uh, you mentioned the double guitar. I I'm left-handed, but I learned how to play right-handed and being a, a keyboard player to start with, you know, Jimmy Page used double necks, you know, 12 string, six string, anybody who's familiar with Led Zeppelin knows that guitar and knows Jimmy, you know, that knows Jimmy Page, but I invented, think of it as a twin V-neck. Think of it like a V. And I invented a left-handed and right-handed guitar. And, uh, you know, other famous guitar players have used them. Jack Black used one. Uh, a kind of a fun, a spoof of it in the Pick of Destiny. And so that's that kind of sums things up in about 20 minutes. But uh, that's pretty much what I've done. There's a lot more, but that that that's kind of a good overview. Well, we still have another 40 minutes to go, so you might as well just keep right on going there because it's it's pretty interesting. How did the whole concept with the double neck guitar come about for you? As far well, as well, I 
you know, yeah, as far as inventing it. And, uh, yeah. you know, I think if I wouldn't have been uh, a guitar player, I'd probably be an engineer or an attorney or something. Uh, you know, I like to uh, design things and art runs in my family. Uh, I have paintings in my house and drawings from great, great grandfathers and beyond, you know, from the 1800s. So I, I come from an artistic family, especially on my mom's side. And, and so I invented, I mean, invented, I, I had the ability to draw. I was a good artist too. So, um, and I started just drawing designs of guitars and I always thought to myself, you know, there's so many good guitar players. There's so many good musicians, so many good singers. I mean, the world is filled with talent and if talent was all it took, everybody'd be a rock star. And, and so I said, there's gotta be something more. And, you know, you've gotta be able to, to, to stand out above the crowd. And, and so what I did was I started working on, uh, on stage moves and, and playing over the neck, like a piano on guitar. And, you know, I got a lot of encouragement from people that saw me play. And, you know, I was in high school, I was playing over the neck, under the neck. This, I call it the MAB over under, you know, a lot of my fans call me MAB, but I came up with this trick where I play over and under the neck really fast. And, and it's a really cool visual trick. And I play, you know, real notes. It's not just noise. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. And, and most of these things I came up with on stage. But the first double guitar was actually I was holding one six string right handed guitar. I took another right handed guitar, Flying V, put it left handed. I used a snare stand. To, to grab the guitar because snare stands are usually three prongs. So you could grab it. it. It held a flying V. And so, and then I taped duct taped it to a dolly, had my friend wheel it out like the Trojan horse. So I, I was holding a right-handed guitar and you could see a left-handed guitar on a stand. And I went and played crisscross over the neck left-handed. And that sounds really outrageous, but it's the same. If you think about playing right-handed, you're holding a pick in your right hand. You're fretting with your left hand. So when I play crisscross lefty, I do the exact same thing. I hold the pick in my right hand, fret with the left hand, except it's backwards. I mean, that's the real hard part. But the audience freaked out. And, and uh, so I knew I was on to something. And I just kept refining, refining the design until I was able to actually design a double guitar, which is what I call it, and have a company make it. And they did. And and I came up with these weird things like, uh, I you know, I, at first I, I had the guitar straight out, you know, kind of biblical, you know, it just didn't look it. But then I, I saw a photo of Eddie Van Halen in a magazine, a full length photo in one of the uh, rock mags. And I took some tracing paper and I traced it. I traced his image. I flipped it up. Tracing paper's real thin. You, you know, you can see through. So I traced it with pencil, not ink, just pencil. And I flipped it over and I looked and there are these mirror images of guitars. And I took this thing, which I still have to this day, a protractor that we got when, when I got when I was a kid in school for mathematics and measuring angles. I measured the angles of the two guitars and the necks were roughly 115 degrees. So, you know, if you think 90 degrees is a right angle, put it up to about 115. Now you get this V shape that is, it's the way a normal guitar player would play lefty, a normal guitar player would play righty. And that's what I based the, the design off of. And uh, the first company that built one was a Chicago company where I'm from called Dean Guitars. And they built the very first one. We, we took a right-handed guitar, left-handed guitar. I balled them and said, saw it right here. And then I use uh, a, a mechanism that's very, very simple. I take a $10 American recessed flight case latch. So if you ever see like on airlines and airplanes when the flight attendants are bringing the carts through, that's like a flight case. If you ever watch the way they, they lock them, it's just, it's this latch. All it is, is it connects two pieces of whatever you're trying to connect and you twist it and, and, and just lock and load. And that's what I did with the double and it worked perfect. And I still use that design to this day. So that that's kind of where I came up with everything. But 
you know, I, I got ideas from jazz players. I studied jazz when I was a kid, and there was a, a saxophonist named Rasan Roland Kirk who I saw on a local TV show. They used to have every Sunday different concerts on this. Uh, it was WTTW Channel 11 in Chicago, and like one week they might have the Allman Brothers. Next week, the Chicago Symphony String Quartet. The next week they might have a rock band. Uh, one week a jazz concert, and they had a jazz concert with this old jazz player named Rasan Roland Kirk, and he played two saxophones at the same time. And that's I said, this is what I'm doing. And I was only a kid; I was like 11 years old, and, and I'd been playing guitar for a year. And I said, I'm going to do that on guitar. For, and I did it. And it took a, a few years, you know, a decade or so and more, you know, until I was at the point where I could get it made. But um, I did it. And that, that's how it started. Um, Dean Guitars now is, um, I think they relocated to Tampa, Florida, right? Yeah, I'm not with them. The, uh, the owner that was really great, Dean was the founder, a guy named Dean. He's still in Chicago. He sold the company way back in, in the late 80s. And a guy named Elliot uh, Rubinson bought it. And Elliot's the one who took it from, from, you know, a really small company to this global juggernaut, which it once was. And unfortunately, he, he was a real close friend of mine. And, and I loved working with him. And he passed away in 2017. So I left the company. And now I don't even know what's going on with them. They're still in Florida, but it's not the same company. So the um, the, the 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 guitars that you had made were made by Dean, and, and if you had those guitars made today, who makes them for you nowadays? Well, I I endorse a company out of L.A. called Sawtooth, and people say, "Well, what the heck brand is that?" Um, they are part of a, a three-company music conglomerate, and they're amazing. In fact. All the years I've been playing the double, not one company, I've only been with a few, but no one was able to do a limited edition double guitar because it's so expensive to make. Sawtooth pulled it off. We had a limited edition run of 50 that just came out uh, this year. They're all gone. And we, we didn't want to sell them to music stores. We wanted people to get them to try and see what they could do. And, uh, it was only like 1500 bucks and, and they made really good ones. You know, we were able to do a really good production model. And there's this young guitar player that goes by the name, the do, and he wears a mask. And, uh, I didn't even know he bought one. He bought one of the 50 posted a video online playing a dragon force song and it got millions of views. So, but sawtooth is a great company. They, they just don't deal in primarily uh, metal. But they have me as an endorsee, Rudy Sarzo, who played with Ozzy Osbourne and Randy Rhodes and White Snake and and Quiet Riot and Vinnie Apice, who was the original drummer in Dio and Black Sa and played in Black Sabbath with Ronnie James Dio. So they really they, they have real high level endorsees and they've got a bunch of young bands. Uh, they're looking for younger bands too, you know, ones that are, the, you know, early twenties. Uh, they have one called Liliac. It's a family band where the oldest members. I think 22 and their, their brothers like 16 playing keyboards. And, you know, it's just, it's a great company and they make really uh, awesome gear. So the guitar really, and I was looking at, I was watching the video of it where they were talking about the, uh, the guitars that we were just talking about. It looks a little bit like a telly. It's only got a bridge pickup, but the guitars actually come apart. So it's actually two guitars. And when you unhook them, they basically fit kind of uh, opposite each other in a guitar case. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. That's my uh, that was my idea, too. They've always been two guitars. And, you know, throughout my entire career, I've used really pointy guitars for the double. Always. They were always, you know, they're, you know, like whether my first one was like kind of a mini explorer shape. So you picture, you know, that was pointy, not super pointy. But then we got extreme where they were serious points. And, and all my double guitars are like that. And, you know, in this day and age. In, in, you know, it was 2020 when, when we came out with this new version. I thought to myself, you know, this, see, in, the, in quote, the old days or, you know, when, when I was signed to Warner Brothers, one of the things that uh, the labels looked for and, and pick an album and you can see stylistic continuity. You know, if you think about a band like A Cheap Trick 
and you think about an album from start to finish, there's a continuity to it. Even when Led Zeppelin did Led Zeppelin three, they and they had electric on one side, acoustic on the other. It was continuity on both. It was different, but see, they it was a thing. Um, when I was in Nitro, we wrote you know over twenty something songs for our second album. Uh, the label hated uh, some of our best songs. Not that they weren't good songs, they weren't they weren't compatible with what the band Nitro stood for. And in this day and age now, it's completely different. You can do whatever the heck you want. And I thought, what is the wildest thing that I can do? Do something traditional. <laughs> so when we got the idea up and, and uh, it, so that's where we got the idea to do the telly shape. And I like it, you know, it's a lot more wood than I was used to, but the guitars are light. And uh, it's made by Sawtooth started using a wood that like purists would go, oh, my, oh, this is insane. Sycamore. And the reason they use sycamore, one, it's super light two, it's strong. Three, it's so plentiful. It's scary. It's like in all different parts of the world. And it grows fast. It's not like bamboo, but, uh, you know, it grows pretty quick and it's not endangered like rosewood or, uh, you know, swamp ash. Some of the other woods that, that you really have a hard time getting now. And, and uh, it's really great. And it's super light because that's one of the key things. I put the double around my neck. It's almost 15 pounds. So if people want to know what it's like, put a 15 pound bowling ball around your neck uh, <laughs> for 50 days a year for 10 minutes a day. See how you feel, you know, not you personally, but, you know, just every, anybody. And yeah, it's you know, there was a lot of thought that went into it. But uh, Sawtooth is great. They're just and they're awesome people smart business people and really uh just really cool you know and and i have a lot of experience designing guitars they have a ton of experience in manufacturing and so whatever i can think of they can put together so if you're playing a guitar just a regular straight up six string do you play right-handed or left-handed uh right-handed mostly even though i'm left-handed you know but i do play lefty good Okay. Do you, what type of guitar do you prefer to play with every day and, and how many pickups and, and how do you set your guitar up and are, and do you get into all that? I mean, does that matter to you or do you just basically take like a production guitar and, and do your thing with it? Well, I've had, I, I, you know, I, when I got out of college, I immediately moved to California and I was there during the eighties during really the heyday of when LA was still LA. And, uh, and, and it was the music mecca of the world, uh, you know, at that time. That was like the center of the musical rock universe when I was there. The best of the best was th- was there. And, and what I meant mean by that is I didn't get, you know, there's a company called Charvel. Well, I didn't have guitars from Charvel. I had the man, Wayne Charvel, personally building guitars. I had the greatest oh, wow. luthier in the world. You know, and so my I have a double guitar that was built by Wayne Charvel through Gibson. I mean, it just doesn't get a higher pedigree than that. And and so, uh, you know, through the years, what I've learned, I, I got kind of spoiled because uh, and, and I've talked to Vinnie Appice, that, you know, the drummer that's with Sawtooth, uh, you know, that played in Black Sabbath and Dio, all those big hits, you know, with Ronnie James Dio with and Sabbath. And when you have the best building things for you and making things you don't really concern yourself with what pickups are in the guitar what kind of frets are these because it doesn't matter because these are stradivarius violins you know the equivalent but having said that over the years here's what i've learned um you know i like my guitar set up really nicely you know you have to have the frets crown the intonation i'm if the my go-to guitars I'm partial to Floyd Roses. I like locking trumps. And I have over, I have 207 guitars in my collection and the majority of them do not have Floyds. And, you know, I love all, all kinds of guitars, but when I tour like with Man of War or I go out and do more metal shows, I like to have Floyds because they're so precise in their tuning with the micro tuning adjustment when you play instrumental music, there's a reason Steve Vai and Joe Satriani and it used a Floyd. There's a certain tone that you get. It, it's like this singing lead sound when you lock the trim. And, and I'm not saying other guitars can't get it. I mean, there's a lot that can. But 
there's a stability and unless you break a string then all heck breaks loose but uh i love the fact that floyd's i can just beat the heck out of them live so my go-to guitar is basically a super strat style 24 frets um i like i'm i'm more of a humbucker guy than than a single coil and so and seymour duncan's are my faves and then i use fishman fluence pickups that are absolutely incredible and and uh, i do like single coils too but if i had to pick one or the other it'd be more it'd be humbucker and and so that's really you know my go-to guitar and, and uh but you know i've also uh, developed a thing called a hybrid guitar where it's uh we actually were able to put a set of humbuckers and a strat style set of three single coils in one guitar and you get 24 different sounds with no with no uh rf or any kind of frequency problems or like humming or anything this guitar is killer it's awesome and we did a, a tele version too so you have true humbuckers true single coils but uh over the years i've learned a lot about you know what i like as a player and i don't like super low action either i like it a little higher because it gets good tone and and because I, I like you know i get a good sound out, out of my guitars and uh but, you know, the ones that I use personally are, are set up at the factory. I don't really have any, you know, issues with that. And then with Sawtooth, they have a thing called an Americana where they can upgrade the electronics and the pickup so you can get the top of the line, everything. And that's usually what I use. When you um, um, started playing, who were some of the guitar influences, influencers but, to you? In other words, you know, when you're growing up, and actually, I think you're you're, uh, you're 1956 also, right? That's what year you were born. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of grew up around now, same same here. So you got to be beat by a couple months. I'm in October. You're I think from earlier in the year. But so who were some of your musical influences back then? And who did you think was pretty cool? The other thing I was going to reference too is in one of your interviews you mentioned that, and I don't want to use the word shtick, but the one thing you referenced was like Mozart played with a cloth over the piano, over the That's keys. Right. All right, so yeah. elaborate on that. First off, your influences, and then kind of like the shtick, so to speak. Well, you know, uh, as a 10-year-old kid, when I started playing guitar, I actually, I, I don't know why, I, I gravitated towards instrumental music. So one of my earliest influences was The Ventures. And then oh, really? okay. uh, I play songs like Outer Limits, Wipeout, Secret Agent Man, Pipeline. I know all those songs. And, and uh, then, and I was always in bands. And so I, I'm a pretty good singer. I'm not a great singer, but I've always sang backups in bands. And so I played songs. So my earliest influences really were the bands that were on the radio at the time. And obviously the Hendrixes. And, and then, you know, a few years later, Led Zeppelin. But my initial influence was definitely the Ventures for a couple of years. And I studied jazz. So I listened to people like George Benson and, and my parents liked music, but they liked things like Sinatra and Elvis. And I, I liked, I actually liked some of the 1950s music because guitar players came from a jazz background, or if you were country, you could play bluegrass, which a lot of these players could just tear it up. Technically they were way better than Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix. Technically, I'm not talking musically, but, you know, I mean, like when you hear, uh, you know, the song Rock Around the Clock, whatever that, when you hear that, do -do 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 you know, the guy's ripping off this, you know, chromatic scale really fast with a clean sound. Rock players did not do that. And so what I did was my early influences went from the Ventures, then a few years later, Black Sabbath and, and Deep Purple and Hendrix and, and uh well, Hendrix was right around uh, the venture time because his first album, Are You Experienced, is, is what I heard. So that was a little earlier. But then Zeppelin came out a few years later. And by the time it hit the 70s, I was really into prog rock. Um, I didn't listen to much commercial. I started listening to Alan Holdsworth and bands like Yes and Emerson, Lincoln Palmer. And I'm a huge King Crimson fan. And, you know, John McLaughlin, all these really awesome technical musicians and i never kind of got got away from that <laughs> even and that's what i loved about the 80s i mean it was like a renaissance of guitar like it is now i mean 
everybody in LA, you know, critics called, tried to, you know, called it shred and tried to be, you know, make it a derogatory thing to be fast. But, uh, you know, I'm going to get to Mozart. What I learned in school was this is a time, this is an age old technique. Critics have always been like this. It's nothing different that they said about, oh, it's shred. There's no feeling. They said it 200 years ago. So, you know, who remembers the critic that said Mozart had no feeling? You know, nobody. And and, and so, you know, I, I never really listened to that because I knew it was BS. Uh, but that's kind of, you know, where my influences were. And then, you know, later in life, I realized uh, and, and, you know, even like I, I realized early on, by the time Van Halen hit, I realized I was not that kind of guitarist. And and the reason is this, and then I'll, I'll touch on Mozart. One of the biggest differences between especially today, but when when we were growing up, is we had the records to listen to. We do not have performances of Mozart. We do not have performances of Bach or, or Beethoven or Shostakovich or any number of, you know, it wasn't invented. We have the music, the the written music was a very good indication of what their music sounded like. You could notate it really closely to what they wanted. But here's the difference. How do you notate a vocalist like Elvis Presley? How do you write that down? If someone's never heard Elvis sing, how the hell are you going to write it? Can I write a number? Can I write Jimi Hendrix playing voodoo chugger? You cannot write that. And so the biggest change that we've had that has occurred is the way we perceive music. This is why all these bands like the Beatles and Hendrix, it's why they're still so popular, because we found a modern way to preserve what that music back then sounded like, just like Bach and Beethoven's music is preserved because we have a real good idea by the way they wrote there. It's so many details when you write standard notation, uh, bow, you know, the way you use your bow, the, you know, the, uh, there's just so many little things, you know, uh, dynamics, uh, things called rubato where you stretch measures so it's not 100%, but it's 90-something percent. We know what they sounded like, and we know the instruments they used. So, but you cannot translate that to today. I mean, what does a piano sound like? It sounds like a piano. How many sounds are on a piano? Two, loud and soft. Maybe three, in between. Maybe four, where you add sustain to the piano. That is it. I can't make a piano sound any different than Mozart can could if he came here today and just played an upright piano the only difference is our skill level people are better people are worse but i can't if we all hit a concert pitch middle c it all sounds the same but that's not the way it is with guitar or singing or rock music you can't notate jimi hendrix you cannot do it you can't notate eddie van halen going wow you know the solo and beat it you can write it out but if we never heard them play it that written that written notation would not even come close. And so that's one of the biggest things. And so so I realized I was never a Hendrix or Van Halen type of guitar player. I was more Eric Clapton, where he could be notated. You know, and that that was something I learned about myself. Like I didn't use the whammy bar like to or or make all the wild sounds. I played more technical like jazz players or or, or like a you know, um, fusion guitar players. And I used it in metal, and that's what a lot of metal guys did. But uh, getting to Mozart, one of the things that I learned very early on, <clears throat> excuse me, studying music, is that if you, music is always first. You have to have the music. But if you have a show to go along with it, you've just upped the game big time. I mean, did Hendrix need to smash and burn guitars? No. Did Elvis need to look the way he looked? No. Even Frank Sinatra was a teen idol. Now, he's not my generation. Neither was Elvis. But did he, he was considered a sex symbol. Did he need to look like that? No. Uh, did singers in the 50s, real handsome guys, real pretty girls, did they need to look the way they looked? No. But, man, did it help. And then you go back in, in, uh, in the past, 
did Beethoven need to have this wild looking hair? I mean, he was a total rock star or Paganini having a show. He was a rock star. In fact, they kind of credit Paganini, the famous violinist, as being one of the first true rock star like uh, performers because he had a type of show. You know, he looked really bizarre. You know, the way he moved, it was kind of jarring to people like seeing the Beatles for the first time or or, you know, like Lady Gaga and raw meat at, at an award show. You know, we're like, what the heck? And uh, but with Mozart, what his father used to do, Leopold is Mozart was a child prodigy. So he used to go around the courts of Europe. And uh, there's an instrument called the clavichord. And it's a very soft. That's why the piano was invented. It's but it's uh, before the piano was invented, because the clavichord is a pretty soft instrument and it's made to play in front of a small group of people and primarily kings, queens dukes, earls, princes, uh, the royalty of wherever they were going in Europe. So what, what Leopold did with, with Wolfgang, with this son, is a clavichord uh, is a much smaller instrument than a piano, and it's much softer. So Mozart used to be able to put a cloth over the keyboard, walk over to the other side, and play it upside down. <laughs> They're like, that's cool. And, and so that's, and that's what I realized, like, he had a show. He had a show. And that's, it's worked for him. It, it worked through the years. Um, we think about Johann Sebastian Bach. He was unknown in his lifetime. It wasn't until a century later that his music was discovered. And, and he became, you know, the, the, you know, the, you know, the global phenomenon for that Baroque era that he is today. Nobody knew about him. He was he was not flashy. He was not known. He was just a church composer. And and they didn't even think, they thought he was old school during his own lifetime. And, and so I know a lot of stuff about music. I'm a student. I've always, I have a motto for myself, always a student. If I think I know too much, I need to get out of it because I don't want to be the smartest guy in the room. I like to, uh, but I really studied about history and it's really, and it's helped me have such a long career because I, you know, I, when I see critics criticizing artists, I, it, I mean, they said Led Zeppelin couldn't write, you know, Kiss is just a fad. And, you know, I mean, Rolling Stone said Led Zeppelin, they, Zeppelin can't write songs. I mean, who even remembers who, maybe, you know, people know who wrote that article about him, but it's just so stupid. It, it's, uh, it's always critics that can't uh, criticize the ones who can and it's no different in Mozart's era and through the century. So, you know, they tried to do that in the 80s with Shred. Shred guitar right now is so popular. It's scary. It's, I, I mean, everybody uses it. And, and critics at first, it started in the 90s with the grunge era when they stopped playing guitar solos. They tried to call people that were really technical, that played metal and rock. Oh, they shred. And it was a derogatory term at first. But really what it meant was were these they tried to lump guitar players who really tried to be good at their instrument and show virtuoso. It doesn't mean you play virtu you you write music as good as ACDC could write rock songs or the Beatles could write or Led Zeppelin or even Linkin Park. It doesn't mean you're a great composer. It means you're a great player. And that word, it started off, critics tried, they couldn't do it because they were wrong. And now everybody goes, dude, he shredded, man. It's like part of our, it's like a, a, it's like a positive word in guitar. And, you know, if, if somebody's playing piano, man, he was shredding on the piano, but it's primarily used for guitar and it, it's a super popular genre. I mean, there you go, you know, so that's why I'm here. Well, like, you know, and, and tell me if this if I'm wrong here, but it seems that Eddie Van Halen is kind of credited with that style of playing, and then it became real prolific throughout the whole '80s, uh, uh, hair bands as they called them back in the day. So, but the the thing I want to know is like for example, I was watching some of your videos, and especially when you're moving your hands on top of the neck and below the neck, and you're yeah, tapping, that's you're tapping a lot. And so, and that's why I was curious because, you know, you just got through saying that you had like a high action. Well, I would think that if you're tapping, you'd want a lower action. Tell us a little bit how that process works a little bit that, you know, because not only that, you weren't really picking the strings. You're up there on the neck 
and you're tapping, but you're also tapping on the neck as well, you know, like up, uh, up towards, uh, you know, towards the back of the neck um, by the body of the guitar. How does that basically work? Well, the over-under, uh, I hit a note above it, then the next note below it, and I use open strings because you can play scales all the way up and down the neck using open strings, but they have to be in certain keys, E's, A's, D's, G's, you know, so you have to be careful on, on when you use that. Um, so I just really do like a tremolo picking on one side, like, and then I'll hit E on the 12th fret first string under the neck. Then I'll hit D on the 10th fret first string and I'll move down a string. Then I'll move to the next string. And, uh, you know, as far as tapping, you're, you're right about Van Halen. He just revolutionized guitar because he, he, the way he tapped, it just sounded unearthly. No one had really ever heard that sound on an electric guitar before just kind of like Hendrix did in the past and, and uh, you know, where they, you know, he's just making a guitar talk and, and no one had heard that before. Um, you know, distortion guitar opened up the world to guitar players and, and uh, it's sustained guitar never had sustained before. Classical guitar has no sustain. Acoustic has no sustain. But so the, the idea that an overdriven guitar can sustain and an electric guitar gave me that ability to do these over and under things because the notes kept ringing. It doesn't just cut off and, and choke itself off. And that's, that's what I did, you know, primarily how, how I did it, you know, tapping is a little different because you use both hands, but with tapping, it has opened up a way to play guitar where you can rival the most complicated piano riff. And, and that's why I love guitar so much. It is, it's absolutely unlimited what you can do with the guitar, whether it's acoustic, electric, but especially electric guitar, because you can make it clean and play beautiful chords. You can sustain it like a piano. You can play staccato, ding, 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 uh, like, like pizzicato, like a violin. And with tapping, you can cover a massive amount of, of territory. See, one of the reasons it's so hard it was so hard for guitar players to play violin music is it first of all the tuning of a violin is in fifths so from the the low g string the fourth string the lowest string the next note is a d then that is an a that's a big jump see on guitar it's a fourth so it's not as wide of a jump and the neck is a they called it the speaking length the speaking length is way longer so you you can't make these wide interval jumps from string to string because it's not tuned like that. And then the violin's neck is so small, you can go just tremendous range in a short, uh, in a short, literally a short span. You know, your hand, just stretching your hand out, you can go way farther uh, note wise and, you know, from low to high than you can on a guitar way farther. But when you add tapping, now you're you've got two hands doing that, and with that, then your your tap your tapping hand, the one that you would normally use for a, a pick, can play those upper registers. So now you can duplicate violin stuff. It's pretty amazing. It's incredible, actually. We got a few minutes left here, Mike. Um, I want to go ahead and two things. One, I want you to share a little bit about your your instructional stuff that you do on YouTube. You know, in guitar lessons and stuff. But there was a YouTube channel, and I asked you about this when we first talked about the neighborhood band in Chicago. And oh, yeah. Tell us, tell uh, I, I, I really like those guys, and there's some very talented guys there. And then what surprised me is one day you're there, I mean, just, you know, shredding away, having a great time. Tell us about how that uh, little group got together, and do they do that annually? Is that their deal? Well, we tried, you know, except for COVID. But I don't organize it. It's the drummer, Dan. I've known some of those guys since I was 12 years old. They, we all went to high school. There, there was an area around my house they called the neighborhood. It was maybe 15 minutes away. And, and a, a bunch of the guys that participate in that jam that you saw, we call it the Dam Jam. And the reason we call it that is it's in Chicago by Dam Number 1, uh, part of the Des Plaines River. There's forest preserves that run all along the Des Plaines River through Chicago up into Wisconsin. And, and they, they keep a big uh, uh, thing of forest preserve on each side of that river 
And so, and they have pavilions there and it's called dam number one, where they have a pavilion, a, a roof over it. So, you know, you just block it out, you know, it's free. Uh, you can bring beer, but you just cannot uh, have glass. They don't allow glass and, and you know, just uh, aluminum. So anyway, um, I've known these guys since I was a kid and some of them, since I was 12 in middle school, we used to call it junior high back then, but it was it's middle school today. And then yeah. the majority, the majority of the guys I, I was a freshman in high school with. And so we've known each other since we were literally preteen and early teenagers. And the thing from my our generation is pretty much everybody played an instrument. I mean, all, every, all my everybody played. You know, I mean, I would say 80 percent of, of uh, well, I can't even say this, but mo- like I, the vast majority of guys that I knew played an instrument or they had taken lessons at one time. And so, you know, all these other guys that you see at that damn jam, they live, you know, many of them live in different States, you know, families, kids, grown up, all this stuff. But the thing we all had in common was music. And we all kind of grew up in this prog rock thing. You know, everybody was, you know, and, and so we were all kind of cut from the same cloth, so to speak, the King Crimson, Frank Zappa, you know, the musicians type rock music that was so popular back then. So anyway, the drummer put this together. He started it uh, in the late 90s and it didn't really start happening until maybe around 2006, 2007. And so we started getting together with all the guys we grew up with. And then what happened was is there were friends of ours that really didn't play as much uh they were kind of just friends that hung around the bands when we were in high school they started showing up so it's got to be like hundreds of people were showing up maybe 100 150 of our friends and people that went to school with us and then we they organized jams throughout the day and i was part of that i grew up with all those guys and i i was you know i wasn't even in band with any of them after 20 years old 21 you know i moved out to la and you know made it in music and none of them really pursued music professionally, but they all still played and they're really good. There's a lot of really good musicians. They are. You, there's no question about that. All right. We got about a minute and a half left. Why don't you tell everybody about some of your YouTube um, uh, instructional courses that you show um, on YouTube and share with everybody how they can find out more about you? Yeah. Um, you can go to metalmethod.com or any of my social media, Michael Angelo Badio official. You know, I'm verified. It's got that blue check mark. Uh, if it if it does if it's not verified, it's not me, because um, there are some imposters. But I developed instructional programs that became really famous. One called Speed Kills, and uh, I've also taught a lot of famous guitarists. Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine was one of my students. Uh, Dimebag from Pantera. Uh, people like John Petrucci from Dream Theater. Uh, I, a lot of people have studied my stuff. A lot of younger guitarists, uh, Herman Lee from the band Dragon Force, um, and and uh, it they became really well known. And you can get them through a company called Metal Method, MetalMethod.com. But if just Google my middle name's Angelo, Michael Angelo Guitar, and everything comes up. But you know I'm really proud of the instructional programs because I based them off of uh, piano technique and things I learned when I went to college and uh, they still hold up well today. We're still doing really great with them. And, you know, it's influenced a lot of people because, you you know, I just taught pure technique. I didn't tell anybody what to play or how to play it. Uh, No, I told people how to play it, but not what to play. And if you want the right technique, here's what you do here. And here's, you know, tapping, picking, you know, hammers and pulls, all, all the different guitar techniques I taught. Super. Well, Mike, we're up against the clock. I want to thank you very much for hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Um, and, you know, part of our Rocktober theme here with uh, with amazing musicians, and you're certainly one of those. You fall in that category. Real quick, one more time, tell everybody how they can find out about you, your website and everything real quick. Yeah, um, you can find out about me uh, with instructional stuff, metalmethod.com. And I'm on you know, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, all this. It's Michael Angelo Badio. And uh, I, I sometimes put official, but Michael Angelo Badio official on Facebook and Instagram, uh, my YouTube channel. And then, you know, we're on TikTok and a bunch of other ones too. 
Super. Well, Mike, thank you very much for hanging out with us here. We'll look forward to, uh, if you ever come to Florida and you play down here, certainly like to meet you, hang out with you for a while. And again, I want to thank you very much for hanging out with us here at Nostalgia Getting Cars. I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgia Getting Cars this evening. Don't forget to check us out every Tuesday between 7 and 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network. And special thanks to my special guest this evening, Michael Angelo Vadio, guitarist extraordinaire. And don't forget, a lot of car shows, a lot of concerts coming up. And uh, meantime, everybody, stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.